Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. You may be seated. Thanks, Chris, for taking us into Luke. That's that powerful. That is a real powerful picture of what the Lord has done on our behalf as the sheep who've wandered off. So that's in Luke, but we got to come back to, to Matthew, which we've been in for, for the last several weeks since the, the turning of the new year, even before that in the Advent season uh, in Matthew, where we've been in the middle of a series called Jesus' Upside Down Kingdom, in which we've been looking at uh, for, again, a few weeks now, we've been focused in on Jesus' call to an upside-down, most recently, an upside-down sort of righteousness. And how, as members of his kingdom, we're, we're called, on the one hand, to a righteousness that outshines even that of the religious leaders of his day, starting deeper down and flowing into all of life. But on the other hand, are called also, warned in a way, warned of a righteousness that we often try to practice before everyone else that we're called rather to practice before God and not before other people. As if it, this better righteousness like performers on a stage is, is somehow about earning the praise of everyone around us. Earning the Oscar, earning the Emmy, earning the Tony Award. No, our righteousness is, is our living rightly in God's world, God's way, with God at the center of it. Our righteousness is meant to be practiced before God. In secret, Jesus says. In secret. So that what? Do you remember? So that our heavenly Father, who is in secret, will reward it. And Jesus gave three examples of where that's supposed to play out related to the, the three practices included in the Holy Trinity, the Holy Trifecta of righteousness, of religion of his day, when we give, when we pray, and when we fast. For one of these three, though, for prayer, Jesus isn't content to just point out how it's done wrong but actually takes the time to teach us how to do it right. Which can only be because he sees prayer as a particularly important part of his followers' lives, particularly central to their relationship with God, and, and perhaps where this goes wrong the most. So it's to this that we're going to focus on today, how Jesus teaches us to pray, which is found in the middle of the section we looked at last week in Matthew chapter 6. And you can turn there with me and, and follow along as I read from verse 5 through to the end of verse 15. Again, from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 15. This is God's Word. Jesus says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, 
that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you as your Son said, as your children. You are completely dependent on your grace and care for us. As those who are deeply in need of your providing hand, both for our, our daily bread and for the forgiveness of our greatest debt. But who long also to relate to you, not just as, a, as some sort of cosmic Walmart, but as our king, our fatherly king from, for whom your kingdom would triumph over every other concern. Not least, even in our prayers. So we ask, Lord, that beginning even here, you teach us how to pray, to pray like that. And from there, that you teach us how to live as well. In the name of your Son, Jesus, amen. Well, Catherine could tell you where it happened. I can just recount the story of the day that we walked in on a three-year-old Emmett sitting on the couch next to his one-year-old sister with his Bible cracked open in his lap and him whispering something into her ear. picture like that will warm the cockles of a parent's heart as it did for us. Until we heard what he was saying. You see here, Aletheia, in Emmet 316, it says that you should always do what your brother says. No joke. And we've been trying to erase that verse from her head ever since. You know what's worse, though? What's worse is that as a three-year-old, Emmett wasn't just trying to convince his sister of that, but went on to try and convince us as well. And what is heretical enough done to a sibling is absolute blasphemy 
when done to one's parents. And yet, did you ever realize that's exactly what we do with God? With our Father who is in heaven. That is, if we're not using our prayers as the the hypocrites did for nothing but attention from everyone else. If, If we're actually aiming those prayers at God, we're often doing it like the Gentiles, like those who don't pray to God like he's their dad at all because they don't know him as their dad, but pray to him as if he's some sort of soda machine in the sky that that you've got to push and kick to get out of it what you want, as if he's some sort of cosmic Walmart. You see it there in verse 7? Heaping up empty phrases, thinking we'll be heard for our many words. Because he's either not really listening or too dense to figure out what we need. But what might be completely understandable for those who who don't know God, even if it is heretical enough, is complete blasphemy for those who do, for whom he's supposed to be their heavenly father. Because if all we're doing in our prayers is trying to manipulate God into giving us what we want, when we want, whenever we want it, if that's all we're doing, opening up before him whatever authoritative book we're living by and quoting to him, Emmett 3.16 or Jesse 3.16 or whatever 3.16 it is for you, where it says that he owes us everything and better do it otherwise that he's a bad parent. That doesn't say anything about him except maybe that he's gracious enough not to strike us dead on the spot. But it says a whole lot about us, proving that we don't really care one whit about him and don't really think he cares one whit about us. In contrast to this, Jesus teaches us to pray an upside-down sort of prayer when he says we are to pray then like this, which is what I want to focus our attention on this morning, on how Jesus teaches us to pray. When Jesus says, either in contrast to those who who aren't really praying to God, but, but praying in a sort of popularity contest sort of way before others, or in contrast to those praying to some other God or, or as if they don't know God, Jesus says we're to pray rather to God as our Father for his glory and for our good. For his glory. Not because God is some egotistical maniac who can't get enough of himself but because he's the one responsible for this world. He's the dad and the only one who knows how to set it right and who can do it in the end. Because God is God and we are not. So we pray for his glory and for our good because God knows what's good for us more than we know for ourselves. And because he's the only one who's promised us good if only we come to him to define it for us and to ultimately give it to us. 
And that's what we're going to look at with Jesus, at how we're to pray to God as our Father for his glory and for our good. First, that we're to pray for his glory, which is really the focus of the first three requests made in verses 9 and 10. They're begging God for God's glory. Beginning with the one that says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Or for those of us not living anymore in the 16th century, Heavenly Father, may your name be kept holy. Our Father, meaning again that when we pray to God, we pray to him as our dad, as our papa, as the, the one both responsible for us and for our well-being, but also as the one we're responsible to, right? Because it cuts both ways. Your daddy's the one who's going to take care of you and watch over you and protect you. At least that's what he's supposed to do. But he's also the one who's going to set you straight if that's what it comes to. Again, because he's the one responsible and the one to whom we are responsible. Who's not just our Father on earth, but our Father in heaven who, who made the earth and reigns over the earth and to whom everyone on earth owes its allegiance. Which really puts the whole manipulation thing in perspective, doesn't it? That whole pry bar prayer sort of thing that the Gentiles do those who don't know God. Because you can see why with a bunch of, of demigods who, who yeah, we're a, a bit different than you and I, but in a lot of ways just like you and I, you could see how praying to them could deteriorate into that. An endless cycle of just trying to, to get the gods to do what you wanted them to do when you wanted them to do it. How prayer could just become another tactic for, for, for showing a little more skin or for, for slipping them a little more money. But to do that with the God who sits enthroned in heaven, that's nuts. As if he needs anything from you. If he's not your father, you, you'd be better treating him like the Muslims do, at a distance. But if he is your father, don't pray like that, Jesus says. Pray like this. But what's all this business about his name being kept hallowed? I always thought as a kid that it was talking about hollowing it out like some sort of whittling project went wrong. Well, it turns out that's really the opposite of, of what we're after. We don't want it hollowed out, but kept holy, and really kept whole, that God's name and its sacredness would be lifted up in all of life. You know, in the ancient world, one's name meant a lot more than it does today. Used to mean something in this country, too. Now, not so much. But back then, your name was the sum total of who you were. Your reputation meant everything. That's why names were often changed to reflect, demonstrate a, a change of identity. 
But God ain't in the business of changing his name. He's got the name that he wants to be known for. Which is why we're to pray that his name would be kept holy. And that's kept both by him and by us. The request is left intentionally ambiguous. Kept by who? By God, yes. That he'd make his name known in all this world. But also by us. Holy, with, with no holes and no gaps, where God's name is flying high in the sky over the castles of our hearts. You remember that old song, where, where love is the flag? Well, here it's, it's God's name. That it'd be a, a flag lifted high in the sky for the whole world to see that the king is in residence there. And castles is really what this, the next request is about, that his kingdom would come, that your kingdom come, which isn't just a throwaway line. We, we sometimes read over that pretty quick. Your kingdom come, and then we're right on to the next line. Your will be done. This kingdom bit, though, is what the whole story of this world is about. A clash of, of kingdoms. The one belonging to the, the God who, who made this world and is its rightful, its rightful ruler who enlisted the, his image bearers, created his image bearers to, to rule in his stead. Down here on earth as he took the throne up there in heaven. But while we were supposed to be ruling for him, a snake snuck in and took his place. And all of a sudden, rather than ruling for him, we found ourselves enslaved to someone else. A, a clash of kingdoms. This prayer, though, is about coming back and trusting in God to bring us back and begging God to do it. And declaring in the midst of that our allegiance along with it. Right? Not to the, the, the kingdom of that snake or to the kingdom of ourselves, but to the kingdom of God. Your kingdom come. It's about declaring our allegiance. Because you don't pray for his kingdom to come if you're not living under the king. That would be terrible for the king to show up when you're sitting on his throne. That would be terrible. You just don't do that. But if you're living under him, waiting for him, waiting on him, then you do, and you can, and you will. As you long for the day that his name will fly not only over the castles of, of our hearts, but over the castle of this whole world. You know, the Jews said, in, they said back in Jesus' day that any prayer that did not ask for God's kingdom to come wasn't actually a prayer at all. But to be honest, this isn't at the top of my list when I'm thinking through everything that I need God to do for me. And yet, 
This is precisely what Jesus says should be. But praying not just that God would reign over the castle, but praying that he'd reign in it. Because what good is a, a flag flying high if, if in the throne one room someone else is still sitting on the dais? Or if there's still something funky going on in our bedrooms, in your bedroom? What good is it if the kitchen is in some sort of a chaos, right? Or if there's still skeletons in the closet? What good is the flag flying over the castle if God isn't likewise reigning in it? So we pray not just your your kingdom come, but also your will be done. In total, and specifically, that, that it be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which is quite the prayer, isn't it? On earth, as it is in heaven. Praying that day by day, God's God's kingdom would ever expand both in our lives and in the lives of others. But praying finally for the day that it will be able to expand no more because God has come down and and conquered this world like only God can and conquered it for himself. When, When that prayer is finally answered, on the day that vision of the Dutch Prime Minister, Abraham Kuyper, will finally be realized when over every square inch of this world, God will declare, it is mine. It is mine. The day we don't have to pray these prayers anymore. But these are the prayers that we're supposed to be praying today. And yet, I'd venture to say, aren't. Or at least not as much as they should be. After all, how much, how often are we actually praying about God's name and God's reign and God's will? How often are we praying about God's glory? If we're just being honest, 25%? 15? None? And yet, this is where Jesus says to start. Not with ourselves and what we want or even what we need. If you start there, it's all going to go wrong. But to start here with God and with what God wants and with God's glory. So that when we get to us, that'll sound a whole lot different too. When after God's glory, we second start praying for our good. Which is what the second three requests are about. Our good. Beginning with our bread. Praying in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Which is just the basic staple of life. Pretty much the world over. From the times of Jesus to Timbuktu. I had a friend in college who used to pray this every afternoon over his PB&J. And then you'd find him making another one in the morning. 
Give us this day our daily bread. One PB&J at a time. And the Jews used to do that too. Pray this in the morning for the bread of the day ahead. And then in the evening for the bread of the day to come. But really it means more than just what we eat. It's a prayer in fact for all the basic needs of life. For enough money to pay the rent, to keep the lights on, the water running and the bills paid. Not as a a gimme kind of prayer, a gimme gimme this and a gimme gimme that kind of prayer. But as a gonna kind of prayer, as in I'm gonna, gonna trust, gonna always, always trust. Like a a, a day laborer in the ancient world who was paid one day at a time. There were no paychecks, no no compiled interest on, on what you were earning. Paid one day at a time. And the day's pay covered the day's needs. You woke up, you did your bit, not even knowing if you'd have a job the next but you trusted one day at a time. One day at a time. And here it's about trusting God. No matter where you're at. That's how we're to pray. Recognizing that whatever we have, it comes from Him. Whatever we're going to get, He's the one who's going to give it. So we're to put our needs before Him and trust Him enough to ask and to take care of them. At least the real ones, right? Because we can get carried away with what we, we need. But even that is a matter of trust, isn't it? As to what is our daily bread. We're simply to ask when it comes to our good that God would provide it. But notice the concern for our bread, for our basic needs, quickly gives way to a concern for our spiritual needs, for the forgiveness of our debts. As we're to pray next, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. Debts in the sense that that what we owe to others, but not to any other horizontally, the debt really we particularly owe to another vertically. This is about the the great debt that, that none of us can pay for ourselves that we owe to God. The debt for not doing what we were supposed to and not being able to make it right again. So Jesus says we're to pray for what? That God would Forgive the debt and grant us mercy and pardon and pity, absolution and acquittal. That he would grant us remission and release by canceling the debt and by counting us free. But we're to ask forgiveness how? For what kind of forgiveness? for the kind with which we've forgiven others. That God would forgive us as we've forgiven others. Which isn't a time thing. It's not about 
how we've already forgiven others in the past. It's a kind sort of thing. Like we've forgiven others. The way in which we've forgiven others. Which is itself a bit scary. Isn't it? Because I harbor all sorts of stuff against others that I wouldn't want God harboring against me. I harbor all sorts of stuff. And yet this is what Jesus is saying. The measure with which you judge is the measure with which you'll be judged. And we're to pray in accordance with that. Jesus says we're to dare only pray in accordance with that. Not in a tit-for-tat sort of way. We're not to pray forgive us because we've forgiven others. As in, I did this first, now you do for me. I scratched their back, God. Maybe you can now scratch mine. But as we've forgiven them. Otherwise, we're still playing God. Because we're more than happy to live under forgiveness ourselves, but only if we can hold out as God on a payment from others. Reserving a forgiveness that God says we ought to extend because it's the forgiveness we've experienced. Holding out undoes the very forgiveness we're asking for and means you might as well not ask because you can't come to God for forgiveness if you're still playing God in not forgiving others. Which is Jesus' way of saying, don't come looking for it if you're not willing to extend it to everyone else. And lead us not into temptation, Jesus says, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, as in lead us away from it, and rather into righteousness. And thus, that, that we'd, be, we'd be delivered from evil. Prayed whether with regard to the temptations related to our daily bread, tempted by the things we need or, or think we need or don't really need at all, or with the temptations that surround our, our forgiveness of others and the way we relate to them and the way we choose, therefore, to relate to God. We're to pray at the end of all else for God to deliver us from evil, from the evil of our own hearts and the evil of our world and from the evil one who lurks behind it. Why? Because we're ultimately praying about something bigger than ourselves, something bigger for ourselves, something that starts with God and God's glory, 
God's name and God's reign and God's will and extends then to our needs and our deepest need and our continuing need for help in following him. This is how we're to pray to God as our Father, knowing that he cares for us and proving that we care for him, for his glory, as we put before him our needs. Notice, though, that this isn't just about how we pray, but also about how we live. For at every point in this prayer, the way we pray is meant to change the way we live, impact the way we live, be a first step in living different. And Jesus makes that point explicit when he focuses in on this matter of forgiveness again in verse 14, after the prayer is done. When he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. It's a sure thing. It's done. If you know how to for, forgive, you're, you're proving your dependence on the one you ultimately need forgiveness for. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, he says, neither will your Father forgive yours. As if you sort of messed up the future by how in the present you're looking at the past. That you apparently don't need it, so why would you give it to anybody else? Jesus is saying, how, how could anyone know God or presume to know God who passes over our iniquities, all of our shortcomings, all of our faults and our flaws and our, and our frailties, our failures, when that person is unwilling to pass over the sins and shortcomings of others. Not to grant ultimate pardon. That's not what this is saying. That's between them and God. But as if to say, I release you from the debt you owe me for what you've done wrong to me and leave you to deal with dad. You see, the way we pray and the way that we are supposed to pray to God as our Father is therefore meant to extend to how we live. Because this prayer is as much a prayer for God's help as it is a, a commitment to doing it ourselves, to, to flying that flag over the castle of our heart, and to, to giving over the keys to the closets, to relying on God for all that we need, and trusting Him in the end, that, that He knows what we need better than we do in coming to Him for forgiveness just as we're already expected to have forgiven everyone else. To have released them from our debts and really to, again, let them, let God deal with them because he's the dad and we are not. The one who's responsible to do it and the one we're responsible to.
Isn't that something? Isn't that something? Isn't that an upside-down sort of way to pray? And yet, how much more? How much more are we to pray like this, this side of Jesus? Who not only taught us to pray and prayed like this himself, but also made it possible for us to pray like this too. Because before Jesus, you could pray and you could even name God as your heavenly father. Not many people dared to, but you could do it. But most people wouldn't have dared because they knew they didn't have a right to dare. As you can see from just reading the Old Testament. But after Jesus, and especially after Jesus went to the cross, where incidentally is the only time we hear him praying not to God as his Father. When the relationship, when the relationship itself was, was on the docks on our behalf. After Jesus, after the cross, we're able to claim him as Father like we never otherwise could. Because we've been adopted through faith, trusting in the work of our big brother on our behalf. We've been adopted and invited into the family of our Father in heaven. And I want to just end with two simple questions. Two simple questions, two written in my notes, T-O, that's not right. Two simple questions. First is this. How do you pray? Do you pray like this? With God as your father? Or do you play, pray like the hypocrites do? Who aren't really praying to God at all? or as the Gentiles do, who don't even know God. Or, like three-year-old Emmett, throwing back in God's face everything he owes us and how he better accommodate us and give us what we want, or he's not being the daddy he should be. Or do you pray like this? You pray to a heavenly father, to your daddy, to your papa, the one who knows, it, you know is responsible in the end. And the one you recognize that you are responsible to. Do you pray? And do you live like God is your father? The second question though is this. Do you pray and do you live for something bigger than yourself? Yes, for his glory and for our good. That's included in this. Don't walk away not seeing that. Our ultimate good, right? Beyond just the bread. But also, do you pray and do you live as if you're a part of something bigger than yourself? Because sometimes this gets just as easily off track 
when we think God is our Father, but that we're somehow living in a family as an only child. This sometimes gets off track when we're living as if Jesus isn't even one of his kids. But that's wrong too, isn't it? That's wrong too. And isn't anything like how Jesus teaches us to pray here and teaches us to live here when he says we're to pray like this. Listen closely. We're to pray like this, together. Pray not just for me, 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 and mine, 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 but what? Our and us. So do you pray and do you live like you're a part of something bigger than yourself? Do you pray, do you live for our Father's name and our Father's reign and our Father's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? And for our bread, our bread, not just your own, looking out for one another in that way as well. And for our debts that we often incur together and are going to have to deal with together or have them dealt with by God together. I'm praying ultimately that we'd be spared from evil even as we join each other in the fight. Why? Why? Because we're part of the family of God not just as an only child, but as brothers and sisters who have benefited from the work of our big brother, Jesus Christ. And I want to end by praying, but actually praying this prayer together. Jesus says, pray like this, which means we don't always have to pray exactly this, but there is value, too, in praying this to start. So join me. Join me as the worship team comes back up as we pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.